Hi Herbalist, this is Heather Irvine and this is going to be an introduction to a series on phytochemistry and this is really going to be from an herbalist perspective uh, by, from, and for herbalists. So there are going to be some terms and angles in here that um, might not be either familiar or possibly not even relevant to you if you're not an herbalist, unless you're open to kind of learning from um, another angle, another way of language. Um, and I mention that because, you know, it's only going to be a small portion or percentage or influence of it that is from um, a more herbal angle, but uh, this very first part of the series will include some of that. So I am a, an herbalist, a clinical herbalist, an educator, um, probably herbal educator first and foremost after studying in um, two very practical programs, one extremely practical oriented, meaning, um, you know, in the field, in a group, doing plant identification along with a knowledgeable instructor seven song and making plant medicines tinctures galore and many other types learning the how and why learning um, you know are you going to use fresh or dried or select a plant at a particular um, on a particular day or particular life stage of it um, and also the sort of uh, actual observation about whether certain plants seem to work for many people, um, whether there's some nuance to that, and also getting into a little bit of the how and why. I then, um, you know, continued learning in um, a program that identifies itself as more clinical, um, meaning we actually brought clients into clinic and were supervised by our instructors who have part of their livelihood um, helping individuals to um, make decisions about, you know, whether or not certain herbs would be appropriate for them, as well as integrating lifestyle and considering, um, you know, uh, how that fits into conventional care and what we call an integrative model, which is, you know, ideally also being able to have a conversation with the conventional practitioners in some fashion. So that's just a little bit about my background, um, but possibly as, as important as that is to also say that I've um, just personally put in efforts to understand the chemistry of herbs and that is from a really good foundation from my teachers and then um, ruminating and spending a bit more time and going back over certain things taking the range of chemistry courses and then teaching herbalists um, medicinal actions in phytochemistry and sometimes teaching pharmacy or pharmacology students um, herbalism uh, so that is the sort of uh, foundation I have up until the last couple years. I've also recently started supporting a course by Lisa Ganora. Um, she asked me if I would help um, and I'm really pleased because she is a chemist who is also an herbalist and who has been um, 
working on solving the same sorts of questions that I have had, um, but she has been working on that for more decades and comes from a really uh, bona fide chemistry background and has been a consultant in the industry um, for a long time and also comes from, uh, you know, similar ways of learning from and among herbalists, um, folk users, um, you know, just rural plant knowledgeable people and the whole and, um, you know, sort of some of the 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 really well embraced um, herbal teachers in the US um, and um, brings that all together. So I found learning with her, there are a lot of ways that she teaches things that are actually like spot on with how I've been teaching and saying them. Um, and that's perhaps partly personality, partly our own, you know, our, um, some overlap in backgrounds and teachers. And, um, you know, also I've learned a little bit from her before working with her too. So that's, um, a range of where this information is coming from, as well as really getting into the books, so to speak, the pharmacology books, the, uh, phytochemistry books, the, uh, the, research articles, etc. And as an herbalist, um, some of our peers are those who are sort of of a similar mindset about, um, you know, as far as reverence for plants, um, but we have a few in our broader flock who are integrated into doing the um, the bench research or the clinical studies and that sort of thing. So that's another part um, that informs this. But this first little session is going to be much more sort of introductory overview and it's just going to get us sort of into the shallow end um, with more to come, more to follow. So I want to just start us out with a um, a foundational thought here, which is that if we have research on medicinal plants or on plants or on constituents of plants, it is pretty much always um, having been, you know, developed via or let's say um, discovered or known uh, because of traditional use. Now, sometimes the way the research is conducted or the way it is um, communicated is a, a far cry from that traditional use um, and perhaps a far cry from some really widespread traditional knowledge to present. And so it's sometimes a little bit startling <laughs> for those who are really familiar with a plant um, to see how it's sort of... Um, you know, distilled or summarized in some of the research pieces. And I've experienced that as well, um, just from my own sort of eclectic um, sort of personal tradition of learning from, from many types of sources. Um, but if a plant is being studied in a serious way uh, and, you know, if we're finding medicinal actions, it is almost always um, with a just very broad and deep background of traditional use, often and usually too present, okay? So that's just one little takeaway. Now, another thing that we're enjoying to an extent is that the phytochemical literature um, has really accumulated, accelerated, and become both more accessible 
and in some ways, slight ways, a little bit more sensible over the last few decades. So we see, you know, in the 90s, the first couple of studies to recognize that maybe it wasn't just one constituent of a plant, but perhaps some plants could have two active constituents, right? So this was not really a surprise even to people learning and teaching herbal medicine at that time. Um, but it wasn't really kind of with the paradigm of thought of most research. And it also just practical, um, practically speaking, is not a very easy or amenable to research to look at the, the multiplicity um, and the, you know, holism or the, the whole picture of whole plant and all of its constituents. But we do have lots of examples where um, particular plants, hawthorn is always the first that comes to mind, um, has been researched because of its traditional use to present for um, gentle, generally safe um, cardiac support as well as cardiovascular support. Um, so primarily support perhaps of the heart muscle and also per, um, perhaps support of the whole cardiovascular, you know, many angles of supporting the entire cardiovascular system. Um, Hawthorne has been of interest in research. And for a time, there were many studies aiming to identify or find um, determine the active constituent of Hawthorne. And as it turned out, um, individual constituents and even fractions, meaning, you know, groups of similar constituents in Hawthorne were not significantly effective or had no effect. But if you use the whole Hawthorne fruit or extracts of the whole Hawthorne fruit, even just sort of, you know, um, sort of so-called standardized, but very much um, the same as a lot of the just traditional folk preparation methods, um, we saw that Hawthorne extract and Hawthorne fruit does have uh, positive cardiovascular effects, even using the, um, the same, you know, research techniques. Okay. So as uh, David Winston is one of the, as one of a few herbalists or one of many herbalists now who says, it turns out that the active constituent of Hawthorne is Hawthorne. Okay, so that's another takeaway we have. And I want to mention that um, this research has been, you know, although we can poke a little fun of it from a perspective, a, a simpleton perspective of the, you know, the, the just actual user of the whole plant. Um, of course, we do. Um, I, I welcome seeing more research in a lot of ways um, because it's a bit of validation um, across across the aisle um, for what we do and know. And it's, um, it's also, um, you know, is in terms of products, herbal products, if that is the angle that one approaches uh, medicinal plants from, which is an angle that many are approaching medicinal plants from, um, that has improved, let's say, quality control. It has also improved somewhat our understanding of how and why. Um, and has helped been a sort of validation or clarifier to some of the safety issues and preparation methods that have been known and observed by traditional users um, forever. So it's, it's nice to see, um, you know, knowledge is power, let's just say.
I would really encourage anyone who's approaching um, medicinal plant learning from any angle to really try to um, get to some of the how and why whenever you hear a, a medicinal plant statement, especially if you're reading it in books or journal articles, especially if you're reading it, because it's very easy for an author of a written piece to just give bullet points or statements um, authoritatively and... Um, without the author being present to answer more questions or back that up or explain, um, or nowadays, you know, the, um, you know, the, we get a lot, a lot of people are getting information from really quick, um, online media. You might hear a couple sound bites or read a couple of bullet points and, um, the meaning and the relevance and the approach might not all be there. So um, that's just a word of wisdom and a challenge takeaway exercise for all herbal learners from beginning to advanced. If you are advanced, if you're a teacher here, you know, I would challenge you to keep on getting deeper into the how and why because there are numerous questions for any topic that people want to know, need to know, that aren't well explained. So let's keep working on that from the beginners to the more advanced. Um, and also herbal learners, sometimes you've got questions that really, there's there's not anyone in the world who really definitively knows. So um, there's a whole perhaps for new herbal learners, indoctrination into the the ways of thinking about herbs. And there are many different ways, but um, come to it with a sort of a, a soft and flexible and open mind, I would suggest in my little opinion. Okay, so with all those soft statements about herbal learning and chemistry and pros and cons, what is the point of trying to learn um, phytochemistry or herb herbal chemistry? Um, I would say that you can substantiate some of the safety statements. And those who've gone even just a little bit deeper into herbal chemistry, like myself, and in a big way, like Lisa Ganora, and in a big way, like a lot of, not all, but a lot of herbal teachers, um, we can help to make some clarifications about use, safe use, etc. A lot of times, traditional users already know what they need to know. Um, but some sort of audiences or learners or professions need to hear it in maybe some different terms, okay? So, or some additional terms. So we're, we're learning many languages when we learn herbalism, in my opinion, as a, from a standpoint as what I would call an old Western herbalist. Um, around 100 years ago, we would have called me and probably a lot of people at... Um, who learn alongside me or I've learned from, um, we would have maybe been called eclectics, which meant a sort of mishmash or a sort of crazy quilt of um, information and being informed from different um, traditions, from different types of information, from experience, from books, from traditional users, from the sort of cutting edge and new information. Um, sometimes a little bit distracted by uh, momentary myths or old myths. Um, and so the eclectic physicians or the eclectics 
um, of their time around 100 years ago were bringing in their in from their view um, carrying on the tradition of use of what they personally found to be true from using with um, you know themselves or using with if they were physicians patients or if they were community herbalists you know from sharing herbs and information and observations with their community or anyone they came across um, willing to engage in medicinal plant use. So with more words and more vocabulary, we can also be more specific, okay? And lots to say about that. I think we'll get to it in a minute here. Um, we can also sort of more act more usefully do extrapolation. Um, you know, how are we going to follow the meaning of that term? Um, we can, you know, perhaps have more credibility with some, um, perhaps be ridiculed by some, you know, such as the human condition. Um, and we also can perhaps, you know, uh, navigate uh, what might be a, a sound or, you know, kind of more effective or more desirable um, preparation or extraction technique, what are some more, um, what's more important for a particular plant with regard to um, storage and harvest, that sort of thing, all this practical stuff that most herbalists really embrace. Um, we can know a little bit about assimilation. So is this plant going to do very much if we put it on the skin? Some plants, yes. Some plants, no. Is this plant going to do very much if we ingest it or if we take it as a tea or tincture or powder or inhale or smoke it? Um, some plants, yes to all of the, the above. Some plants might have a little bit safer and might have a little bit more effective delivery method. And I can't answer all the questions or all the plants for you in this series, but um the idea is is giving you tools to help you think about um, think about this sort of thing, and we have um, perhaps understanding if we get a little more advanced metabolism um, and combinations with medications. That's perhaps a keep learning type of angle. Um, you know, something I can't answer for you in every instance, but um, it's relevant. Um, and then just simply the wonderment at sort of the, um, both the complexity of the natural world and also that when people say, oh, you know, there's no information, there's no research, we don't know anything about this or that, it doesn't do anything, we can say, aha, but it does. Okay. So herbalists can study phytochemistry in several different angles, and there's two that I really like to um, emphasize. Um, if you want to be a real smarty pants in the sort of um, biomedical uh, and sort of so-called Western perspective, you might really focus on mechanisms of action. Um, and in a course uh, certificate I teach in, that's really highly emphasized. And it's also something I've been personally very interested in as well. Um, and so that will often, you know, aim to tell us, like, what receptor sites does it act on? Um, what cells or tissues is it activating or suppressing and what, what functions of those and why? Um, uh, and sometimes these mechanisms of action can get much, even much more detailed than that. But we also, um, in keeping a, 
uh, sort of um, open and flexible and practical working mind about this and as plant lovers and I think sort of um, perhaps sensory folk, um, we also can look at the organoleptics, okay? So organoleptics mean ways that we can sense or detect something about a plant or infer something about a plant's chemistry or actions um, or sometimes even safety although you can't rely on that entirely but you can you can become attuned to knowing something about a plant's um, actions or especially actions from the vitalist sense which I'll explain in a, or I'll introduce in a minute um, and you can you can learn about plant constituents from tasting smelling um, to a degree from color um, or other visual presentations and also even sometimes from uh, you know mouth feel the way a plant maybe is scritchy or scratchy or um, you know sounds in a certain context like when it's being ground that sort of thing so that's organoleptics and a lot of herbalists really love organoleptics uh, and I do too and it's not just um, it's not just like the five senses. Like you could also think about how does this feel, um, you know, when you're swallowing it, does it produce a certain sensation in your throat? Do you feel a certain way in your belly, like a, oof, like a disagreeable way or like a really lovely carminative way? Um, and, you know, do you have sort of other sort of sensory and nervous system um, you know, are there are there things you can perceive immediately in your body um, from some interaction with this plant? That's organoleptics. This could be as simple as tasting something as sweet and calling it nutritive, um, or it could be as sort of cheeky as, um, you know, a chemist I knew, though you wouldn't need to be a chemist to make this statement, if we were tasting a really good cup of coffee together, he would say, ooh, I can feel the receptors. So anything that you feel in your body and you don't need a book for or a microscope, that's organoleptics. So we have instincts for organoleptics. We can also train our senses. It's kind of like running. You know, most of us can do it, but you can also train yourself. Um or maybe a little bit more precise action, physical action would be a better analogy, but we have instincts for this and we can train our senses and we can learn um, more language and terms and ways of describing and sharing this information with others and, and even, um, you know, experiencing it and thinking about it ourselves. Um, as we know, um, giving names for colors um, helped humans to be able to sort of differentiate and recognize colors more so. And this extends into, um, or I'd say it's analogous to, you know, learning more of the names for flavors and names for herbal actions or families of plants and groups of constituents. You can learn to, um, you can have a little bit more acute um, sensation and also um, verbalization of some of those qualities. You might even engage some critical thinking then and make some um, theories and, and, you know, that sort of thing, suppositions about particular 
herbs and foods uh, and plants that you approach and learn or some that you know already. The more language and experiences you would have with plants, the more you might say ding, ding, ding when reading a research article or tasting something new. Um, and, you know, in some cases you can even extrapolate a little bit about safety information. Um, although it sure is nice that we have a variety of sources to draw from, including really vast human experience uh, for safety issues. You're not going to learn these overnight. You're not going to learn these from one talk. You're not going to learn these from one book. And if you're a book learner of herbalism, I hope you have uh, books by a lot of different authors because you can get a bit skewed just reading or learning with one teacher or author. And if you're coming from conventional medicine, medicine and learning herbs, um, you might need someone to help you help integrate and translate things a little bit for you to kind of indoctrinate you or re-indoctrinate you into, um, you know, into a little bit different, little bit softer way of looking at some of the terms um, and a more perhaps nuanced way at looking at some of the safety info. So that's a really good um, application of herbal teachers. Okay, like any language, herbal language is, um, or like any discipline, we have terminology that was not invented or conceived all at once. Okay, really, this is an eclectic kind of trade. Nowadays, um, some teachers and schools of thought are teaching sort of three types of terms to approach herbal actions. The first one being the vitalist or humoral, and that has to do more with how our body perceives it. Um, or how our body responds to it. And those some might call a little bit softer terms. And some of the some of the older or oldest terms are there. And some of those terms that are still connected with various traditions um, are in that area, vitalist or humoral. We have allopathic empirical and we have allopathic biochemical. So while that vitalist and humoral might describe like a stringent, demulcent, tonifying, alterative, carminative, things we feel, um, allopathic empirical names actions by conditions for which the herb has been found to be useful against. And this is where you see a lot of bullet points in herb books um, of a certain bent. You might see antitussive, anti-nauseant, antimicrobial, antispasmodic, anti-tumor, um, anti-everything, and you might see this, uh, one of the perplexing things, I think, for an herb learner reading books is that it seems like every plant has every bullet point, right? So anyhow, that's because a lot of plants do have a lot of different applications, but there might be different preparations and ways of using them. So also, it might be that there's a, a tradition that had that plant abundant, and so they used it for practically everything it could scrape some utility from. Um, but it might not be the leading, uh, most most uh, generous plant for a particular action or use. Okay? So we've gone over a little bit vitalist, and then allopathic empirical. Allopathic empirical telling us, like, uh, it's for a cough. It's for nausea. It's for asthma, but without saying a lot about how or why. And then we have allopathic uh, biochemical, um, which is a little bit more organized by um, uh, perhaps an herbs and or constituents action at like a cellular or subcellular level. 
we might learn from this that something is um, immunostimulant and then we might learn that it's um, activating uh, macrophages or that it seems to um, you know induce or reduce uh, activity of a certain type of cytokine or t-cell we might learn something's prostaglandin inhibiting or hepatoregenerative. So these get a little bit more specific and the conventional medical types might really like these terms and I also like them. Um, but you also have to maybe consider that sometimes if a term is really, really specific, you might want to learn, um, was that an isolated constituent in a Petri dish doing that? Or was it uh, the whole plant extract or whole plant puree, let's say, in an actual human doing it. And both of those could be true. Um, but we see, this is why we see lots of different terms used for herbs. And those are three different sort of types and gradations of terms. Okay, everyone, let's take a little mental rest. And then we're going to introduce primary metabolites and secondary metabolites. Okay, did you go taste some tea or some willow bark or look at some flowers? I did. So um, I love this next concept. And again, we're still in the shallow end, folks. Um, you're the endurance, you're endurance learners if you're listening to the phytochemistry series, but there's so much to it. So um, let's get into some substance here. So there are plant primary compound, sorry, plant primary metabolites and there are plant secondary metabolites. And I love this. I first was exposed to this concept when I was taking plant physiology. And I was also in herb school. So I was taking plant physiology and biology and health and pre-med type courses at Cornell. And I was taking herbal classes from Sevensong uh, with a group of about 20 of us um, learning with him and I was taking this phytochemistry class, uh, sorry, this uh, plant physiology class, which was, which I enjoyed, but it's, let me tell you, it's a lot of chapters of just learning about how a bud forms or how, you know, plants in a lab respond to artificial light and just cells and cycles and it's um you know so so it's a, a a topic for a patient learner if you're wanting to finally get to something medicinal plant relevant and I didn't know if there would be anything and then one day we talked about primary metabolites versus or maybe not versus um, compared to plant secondary metabolites whoa and the term alkaloids came in, which was one that I knew from herb school. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Now it's all coming together. So plant primary metabolites are essentially, um, I like to think of it as the, the constituents and the, you know, um, structure that the plant itself needs to be that plant to survive to stand up to have energy that sort of thing some describe it as what the plant would need if it was in a vacuum you know without um, without adversity or a cooperation from other organisms um, and so we see nutritional and energy storage um, molecules and constituents um, produced via photosynthesis 
Um, and they can also those can also serve as or be differentiated into structure uh, for the plant. Okay. And generally, we can think of the protein, starches, and fats that we can ingest from plants and use nutritionally as primary metabolites. So there's a lot of it goes kind of it goes a little bit hand in hand with the very, very fundamental information you might learn in a basic nutrition class, you know, about what are the what are just the the bare bones, um, you know, sort of groups, uh, you know, sugars or starches, um, synonymously proteins and fats. Uh, I consider those generally kind of the plant's primary metabolites, but also things like, um, you know, the fiber of the plant, the lignin, the, the structure that's going to form and hold a stem up, that sort of thing. Also primary metabolites. Okay, and then we get into secondary metabolites. And these are a variation. These are variations from the primary ones, although they're, they're made from primary metabolites. And so these aren't, mm, technically speaking, if we do a little mind exercise here, um, little theory world, little imaginary world, they're not a direct necessity for the individual plant survival, but provide advantages via effects within plant communities or among other organisms. They can provide evolutionary advantages and help an individual plant to avoid predation or disease or encourage favorable interactions with other species. So the plant's bright pink or red that's going to say, hey, Hummingbird, butterfly, come over here and pollinate me. The perfuming scents that might have a similar effect. Um, the colors that might um, interest and tempt us to, or even just help us contrast the plant, uh, the berries with the plant's environment, um, and come to perhaps taste and then pick and then... Um, you know, and then transport fruits and seeds, um, us and other animals alike. Those are kind of traits of secondary metabolites. All the interesting um, phytochemicals that are produced in roots or above ground to deter herbivory or to sort of um, maybe keep another plant from encroaching too close in its, you know, into a certain plant's little space or niche, but also those uh, chemicals and hormones and pheromones that talk to other plants and talk to soil microbes um, and say, hey, like, let's make a deal and let's help each other out and do a mutualistic kind of interaction. Those are also secondary metabolites. So secondary metabolites are where the different species get together and start talking to each other and they're duking it out and they're negotiating uh, and they're sometimes mutualistic. A plant's poisons are also definitely there as uh, they're in the secondary metabolite group, okay? And also a lot of the really heroic medicines, the constituents that can produce immediate effects on uh our physiology as humans and oftentimes other animals' physiology 
um, sometimes more so than it does for humans and sometimes less so. I like to think of this as a, um, even if we think of it as just, uh, let's say, the animals and the plants, I like to think of it as sort of a paper, rock, an evolutionary paper, rock, scissors match going on forever between plants and animals where the plants are going to dish out by a mutation some new trait and then an animal is going to taste and ingest it and either perhaps have an adverse effect from it or that's you know um, and that's perhaps an advantage to the plant and not an advantage to the animal Um, or maybe for some animals, it's going to be euphoric or medicinal, or maybe it's going to really, really tap into our nervous system and um, be something that animals and maybe monkeys are super interested in, and it produces a little stimulation or euphoria or uh, a very pleasing flavor or a carminative effect that helps our tummies feel better. Um, Or maybe it's an antibiotic and, um, you know, animals and humans get accustomed to this and we might, you know, propagate this plant in a big way or in a little, you know, local way. We might... um, we might, con- you know, intentionally or, or almost sort of without thinking or making too much of a point of it, we might sort of encourage that particular plant. So it can be a win-win. It can be deadly. It could end in burning flames or paradise. It could be good for plants, humans, animals, none or both. And those that have some advantage for one or the other, well, those are the traits that... Um, have been carried into present, mostly. There's also a little bit of strong arming of certain sects of humans that has somewhat skewed that, but um, that's not what this talk is about. Okay, a brief on the really broad classifications of nutrients. We know there are carbohydrates, which can be broken into monosaccharides, oligosaccharides, disaccharides. Prebiotics, they're... um, larger types of carbohydrates or starches than we can really ingest. And well, we ingest them, yes, but we can't break them down as caloric energy. But we might have microbes in our gut that can do it. And certain animals have a different variety of gut microbes that can you know, um, ingest their sort of spectrum of what's edible to them. So, you know, we see things like horses and cows have greater ability to digest and derive energy from um, plants that are more starchy and woody than we can. We see, you know, the mischievous beaver that can (laughs) chomp down trees, uh, I believe, thanks to um, gut microbes. And even termites have specific little bugs in their gut that let them live off of wood. So I wonder, if you gave a termite antibiotics that killed its gut flora, would it still be a termite? I don't know. It might be a termite on a special diet after that. Okay, so um, we can, you know, talk about polysaccharides um, as the really complex 
types of carbohydrates or starches that go beyond what we can use calorically or nutritionally. But among those are glycans, okay, glycans. Um, that's another term for a big group of them. Um, with a high molecular weight, which means they are tens, in this case it means they are tens to thousands of units of sugars. Okay, so we're getting a little bit beyond just dietary fiber here. Although, simple foods like, or familiar foods like oats and brewer's yeast are two of the first and most studied plants for um, containing glycans. And if you're into medicinal mushrooms, um, not in the psychoactive sense, but sort of in the immune, immune modulant and adaptogenic and perhaps edible sense, um, you have probably heard of beta-glucans, and there are hundreds of beta-glucans. And beta-glucans, that term, refers to how the sh different sugars connect to each other. And that little connection that they do is something that our human sort of enzymes and digestion can't break apart, but our gut flora can, and there's a little variance too um, among, among humans, um, based on genetics, based on dietary experience, health status, uh, that sort of thing. Um, but we see some of the immune immunobeneficial or immune beneficial um, effects from some of these beta-glucans. Um, not only from feeding healthy gut flora, but also from some detection that lymph tissue in our gut, in our intestines does. Uh, there are areas called Paris patches that pick up on beta-glucans and some other um, specific immunomodulating polysaccharides and these communicate to these pairs patches then can send some immune relevant signals to other aspects and other uh, other parts of the body and sort of um, up regulate or down regulate the activity or vigilance of certain types of immune cells the activation um, can uh, can have an uh, increasing or decreasing effect on um, cytokine and T-cell activation. So we can see an increased response to back pathogenic bacteria and viruses, and we can see a neutral or down-regulated effect on um, cytokine and T-cell action that might cause allergies or autoimmune-type responses. So, a win-win when we're ingesting um, polysaccharides, especially from immune-modulating mushrooms or some of the other um, high-fiber foods that cross into the immunomodulant category. We don't know that all high-fiber foods do, but we know that some high-fiber foods do. Um, we have proteins, fats, and minerals. So proteins and fats, for our purposes, pretty much the same as you learn nutritionally. Um, there are some special ones. Maybe we'll highlight a couple further on, maybe not. Um, and then we have minerals as just a building block, or not a building block, but uh, a differentiator um, and a, a part of all this chemistry. Now, the minerals, um, if we're talking about ingesting plants for dietary minerals and making extractions and that sort of thing, one interesting thing about the minerals is generally heat, freezing, crushing, infusing, 
drying, storing is not going to make the minerals go away. I mean, think about the minerals as the rock, literally. They're going to be, they're not really, they don't disappear. They don't dissipate. Um, there might be a little bit of change in forms in some really specific context, but they're not going away. Um, so we can think of dietary minerals from some plants or, or many, you know, nutritional edible plants like iron, manganese, calcium, magnesium. Um, they're not usually occurring in atomic form. They're not just that that atom or that element only. They occur as salts. So connected with or in association with greater complexes. Calcium chloride, ferrous sulfate, maybe the most, maybe one interesting thing to learn about the minerals besides what plants are super rich in minerals. Um, you know, let me give you a hint. All the, all the good um, folk soup and pot herbs um, like nettles, but also um, you might like to learn a little bit about the different forms that they occur in, um, which are more absorbable, assimilatable, which might have a couple of, you know, health, um, not as friendly things associated for certain individuals. I'm thinking of like um, people who might form certain types of stones in their urinary tract, but generally we're looking at these minerals as uh, nutritional components. And for those who might love to learn more about minerals, a couple of angles of learning that deeper um, sustenance sort of folk herbs, you know, sort of not, not necessarily spices, but the pot herbs, the greens, the, the deep leafies. Um, that's one really, you know, that's one area to look to. And if you like book sources or herbal teacher sources, um, Paul Bergner is a, I would say nutritionalist and clinical herbalist for sure, who, um, has some of the beloved books on, or a really beloved book, on um, the mineral aspect to herbs. And I also really, really love the book, Staying Healthy with Nutrition. There's a retro version and there's a modern version. And I happen to have the modern version, though I've looked at both. And the modern version really gets you pretty deep into um, what forms are in different foods and is really got a good contextual learning presentation um, as well as relation to health and disease um, in a way that is even used for teaching in some of the really reputed conventional nutrition programs as well. Okay, so we've already wrapped up the primary plant metabolites. Let me gather some steam and we're going to talk about plant secondary metabolites and then introduce some of the main sort of elements or atoms of, of phytochemistry. Okay, I'm sure I have a bit of writing on secondary metabolites, but let's keep going. I've got an article on secondary metabolites from an educational piece, and I'll read a couple short pieces, and then we'll um, expand out. So some definitions. Um, secondary metabolites are chemicals produced by plants for which no role has been found in growth, photosynthesis, reproduction, or other primary functions. These chemicals are extremely diverse, many thousands, okay, so more than many thousands, like thousands of thousands, have been identified in several major classes. Each plant family, genus, and species produce a characteristic 
mix, this says, of these chemicals, and they can sometimes be used as taxonomic characteristics in classifying plants. Humans use some of these compounds as medicines, flavorings, or recreational drugs. And I feel familiar, I feel comfortable using a quote there because this is a kind of a textbook type of term, okay? Um, you'll find a variation of that in any plant physiology book. Now, what informs where, you know, where I'll go with this in the series is that um, there are different ways of classifying these. And one is by the chemical structure, like, does it have rings? And what is the, um, you know, uh, a sort of elemental makeup of those rings? Are there sugars? Are there different specific functional groups? Um, you know, the chemical shape is one way of classifying these secondary metabolites. Other influences on classifying secondary metabolites could be like function, and there's certainly overlap, although I have learned there isn't an exact blueprint of form and function, okay? So you can't just draw a line, you know, this form, this function, this form, this action, that sort of thing. I mentioned these secondary metabolites can have effects of deterring herbivory. They can also very highly, very much so be antibiotic or anti-infective. Um, and so plants have produced so, so many constituents to, um, you know, to protect them against pathogens. And there's a little bit of overlap in not the exact organism, but types of pathogens that might um, affect plants or humans, or it might be more accurate to say there is an overlap in what sorts of antibiotic compounds plants have made for their own uh, benefits in survival. And it turns out some of those constituents that plants make that are antibiotic against plant pathogens are also antibiotic for humans and for animals against some of the pathogens that can, um, you know, that we are a host, a potential host of. So lucky for us, uh, and also lucky for us, plants learned about antibiotic resistance way before humans conceived of this idea. And so any plant that makes an antibiotic constituent makes a whole wide array of antibiotic constituents, okay? So um, lucky are we. Plants really have this down. Like if they're being, um, if they're being nibbled on by, um, uh, let's say, uh, bug, critter, insect, etc. The plant can actually can also release compounds that might attract something that's parasitic to that insect, okay, or something that's going to eat or prey on or impact its, you know, its sort of own adversary. So there's a lot of complexity, and if you happen to be in a very dry uh, medicinal plants course or, or um, plant physiology course and you wanted to give like the most um, unrefuted answer about like secondary metabolites. Um, one thing that we know is that a lot of plants secondary metabolites, like its pigments, also, or possibly primarily or first off, um, occur in a plant for antioxidant 
physical value there, protecting it against UV light, um, protecting it against oxidation as well. And some suggest, you know, if you eat a diet high in antioxidants, that might even provide you um, a little bit of UV protection. Um, not to replace hats and sunscreen if, if you are a person who needs those, but um, there is some evidence that just eating a diet rich, uh, or let's say that eating not eating a diet rich in antioxidants, you'd be disadvantaged um, in your you know, sun protection. And we definitely know that antioxidants in our diet uh, are, are health protective in many ways against um, damage that occurs in our own body just from the wear and tear of healthy physiological functions. Okay? Antioxidants are sort of our internal rustoleum. I can't believe I made that analogy because it's very bad. Um, but it's basically protecting against not just toxins, as some say, but um, just the everyday, you know, helping to protect our tissues and our DNA and our gene expression from just wear and tear of everyday life, even if it's a completely, you know, healthy life in a, you know, not very adverse environment. We need antioxidants. If we graduate to some of the secondary metabolites that are more severe and immediate, we know of alkaloids. So this is sort of the opposite end of the spectrum. And these can block ion channels, inhibit enzymes, interfere with neurotransmission. Um, we get some thrills and chills here. It could be curative. It could be hallucinogenic. It could be um, stupefying. It could cause vomiting, death, uh, cure of disease cardiac stimulation or suppression, just depending on the alkaloid, the human, and the dose, or the amount ingested, let's say. So let's not get down on alkaloids. Our um, entheogens and euphorics and our so many of our conventional drugs are there, and a lot of um, favorite plant medicinal actions are there, but these are immediate, and you want to beware if you're, if you're working with an alkaloid plant. On the more pedestrian side of alkaloids, we have the, the methylxanthines, um, the everyday for many stimulants in the so-called caffeine plants like coffee, chocolate, yapon, tea, etc. Um, guarana and mate as well, and a few others. Now, let's not panic just because a plant has secondary metabolites, and they all do, or even alkaloids. There are many that we have some mechanisms to um, ingest, not ingest, to metabolize and to ingest a small amount safely or certain amounts safely. Okay, so there's not absolutism in herbalism typically. Lots of nuance. And if you just look up alkaloids, you're going to find mostly conventional medicines and you're going to find that most of those molecules are exactly the molecule that occurs in a medicinal plant, sometimes with a very slight, uh, some very slight change, uh, perhaps to make it a little less potent, uh, but not often, um, or perhaps to make it, you know, patentable. Um, so these are, these are things, these alkaloids are well known in conventional medicine, and they're well known in plant medicine. And they are really represented among the sort of drug plants and entheogens, hallucinogenics, and psychoactive plants as well. 
Although a plant can be psychoactive um, by constituents other than alkaloids. Sometimes it's terpenes. Okay, I think I'm close to coming to a close on this little segment. So let's give you some examples of secondary metabolites. Many of these will be expanded on uh, deeper, further, more specifically in the series. So we have nitrogen-containing secondary metabolites. The big groups here are alkaloids. Uh, and we can contrast those with the nitrogen and sulfur-containing secondary metabolites. So nitrogen-containing um, secondary metabolites largely represented or interestingly represented by the alkaloids. And for the just beginning learner here, think of nicotine. Think of theobromine. Think of... Um, so theobromine is one of the um, constituents of interest and slightly stimulating constituents of cocoa or cacao. We have caffeine. We have cocaine. We have uh, a number of really immediately nervous system active constituents here. Um, also, we can sort of graduate into and contrast this with some constituents that contain both some secondary metabolites that contain both nitrogen and sulfur. And we can call these glucosinolates. And interestingly, now we're not talking about psychoactive stuff. We're talking about the cabbage family. We're talking about broccoli. Um, so we have constituents like sinigrin, and we have really a whole myriad of glucosinolates, um, some of which gives the pungent flavors and some of the gassy nature to the whole brassicaceae family. Um, and we have a range of gastronomic experiences from desired tastes uh, to ex sort of um, perhaps expectorant value, um, some, uh, you know, sort of GI experiences, and then also some potential health protective effects as well. You might learn these as methylators, meaning having some protective effects on our DNA or our DNA and gene expression, um, and maybe some potential uh, just sort of dietary contribution and perhaps prevention of certain types of cancer, and maybe some relevance with certain thyroid issues, although that's a real, um, I don't know, that's a real riot starter there. There's a lot of debate about that still. We have the wide, wide range of phenolics. So now we're crossing into a different type of group. I like to say all in all, it's all phenol because so, so, so many plant constituents are phenolics. Um, many of them are what I call the vague, uh, slow, health-promoting, health-protective ones. I used to call them the boring ones, if we're talking about just antioxidant ones. Um, but here we have a range because they can also have a little bit more specific medicinal actions too, but generally not as harrowing as the alkaloids. So we have, and these are generally, we're talking about, um, they have a phenolic ring. They have a ring of carbon and they have a little OH group attached to that. They're very common in plant constituents, fruits we eat, etc., etc., etc. Fruits and vegetables, pretty much all plant foods, tea, etc. So we have, um, you know, phenolic acids, which are going to be of fame from fruits, berries, wine, antioxidant effects, etc., etc. Uh, 
And we have some more specific types of groups of constituent coumarins, really still broad group that occurs in the carrot family, including celery, including many spices, especially those that we eat the seeds of um, and might call them um, carminative um, or alterative. This also includes, uh, coumarins are in many spices that we might call slightly sweet or slightly warming like cinnamon, for example, uh, vanilla. Um, we have this, we have cumarins in gallium odorata. We have it in, uh, which I call sweet woodruff, and we have cumarins in clovers as well. Um, and so these maybe have some very slight hemodynamic effects. Um, you know, let's say slight, generally health-promoting effects on circulation, the blood, the lymph, that sort of thing. We have lignans, which can be just sort of, uh, you know, nutraceutical of in nature, um, like we talk about lignans, soy lignans, um, or they can be, they can get under your skin like urethial and poison ivy or mayapple. So anywhere from um, the sort of health promoting, perhaps hormonal, slight influencing, modulating, perhaps chronic disease, uh, mitigating lignans in soy and other fabaceae or pea and bean plants. But we also have some real specific ones in some plants that might give some of us a rash or might produce vomiting uh, in some if you um, have the wrong idea and eat them. For example, the wrong part of the plant of the mayapple at the wrong time of the year. I generally don't eat mayapple, but some do. Um, we have flavonoids, broad, broad, broad group. All of our greens, reds, oranges, yellows, you know, named for yellow flavone. Um, and really the, the wide range of antioxidant plant pigments and fruits, vegetables, many flowers contribute to the brilliant colors of berries, of, of colorful root vegetables. Um, and here we talk about mostly the antioxidant value. We have tannins, which are probably the easiest to sort of cinch in and define. They are astringent. Um, they're usually small, they're usually groups of phenols um, that have lots of OH groups on the, the outside of them. They kind of um, easily make temporary interactions with um, proteins or um, tissue membranes, and they maybe kind of help to cinch those in and make them a little less permeable. And so we feel that cinched in feeling in a puckered mouth when we drink some um, really astringent black tea, or we might feel that in our stomach too. We can feel that when we've eaten a banana peel or some red sumac uh, berry or infusion. Um, and so there's some medicinal applications that are pretty intuitive there, putting it on wounds, um, using it for a sore throat, uh, maybe small amounts for a stomach that's feeling a little uneasy, and perhaps some uh, slight use for urinary conditions where you might want to make the membrane a little bit more um, intact and less permeable uh, and maybe block um, certain bacteria from adhering to your tissue. 
And then we have lignans. Whoops, I mentioned lignans. Oh, there's lignans and there's lignins. So we have lignins, um, which uh, also occur in a lot of the same plants that have lignans. Um, but lignins are going to more so contribute to like structure, toughness, fiber, that sort of thing. Uh, you might learn it in your sort of plant physiology, whereas lignins can have a little bit more of the... Um, some of the hormonal effects, but also sometimes in few plants, a little bit more of the irritant effects. Then we have the wide range of terpenoids. Okay, so we've done some alkaloids. We did glucosinolates. Those are the two of the main types of nitrogen-containing compounds of interest, although the alkaloids have nitrogen in a ring. The glucosinolates have both sulfur and nitrogen and are in the Brassicaceae family, whereas the alkaloids are in the really highly poisonous or immediately medicinal stuff. We did phenols, um, which are the, you know, are phenolics, which contain the sort of, um, well, they contain phenol, they contain lots of um, six-membered rings with OH group attached and can be anything from tannins to lignans, to um, many, many flavonoids, and usually the actions are a little bit more subtle than for alkaloids. And then we have terpenoids, which is also a wide range. Um, so terpenoids um, are characterized by the isoprene unit. It's a little squiggle of sort of conjugated um, bonds um, just a, a, it's a building block that occurs a lot in organic molecules, and, but we can differentiate it from the other groups so far. So the monoterpenes are the really small ones. They travel through the air. We can detect them when we inhale them. And, um, you know, your very highly aromatic plants, especially those used um, either, you know, for perfumes or otherwise characterized as highly aromatic, like mints, like lavender, um, like constituents of jasmine, that sort of thing, um, have notable monoterpenes. Um, and these can actually act on the brain immediately, but it's a short-term uh, effect, and you're not going to override any kind of like important physiological activities, but you might influence some positive mood, memories, that sort of thing. We have sesquiterpenes, just going up a little bit in complexity. And they might be, you know, sensory and aromatic as well. They might also be a little bit um, sticky, some of them. They, you know, they might be, um, they might produce a little bit of the bitter experience from some plants. Or we even have um, a few that can uh, produce some contact dermatitis especially some of the aster family plants um, for those who experience those uh, contact dermatitis type of reactions. We have diterpenes. Um, again, you know, you might get some of the bitter aspects. You might get some flavor aspects. You might get some medicinal aspects among diterpenes. Um, and not many, but a few could be toxic and or medicinal. But then I want to get to triterpenes, which are um, graduate to, um, sometimes we call a few of them triterpene saponins because they have graduated to a specific type of structure 
that contains the same blueprint as the cholesterol molecule. And that's the same blueprint as a lot of our hormones, our so-called reproductive hormones too. And so we get a little bit of modulation and talking to and sort of waking up responses to different hormonal systems. So ginseng is famous for having triterpene saponins, okay? Um, just one, one plant of many. Licorice is famous for having triterpene saponins as one of its constituent types. And so we get these subtle, not overriding, but subtle um, sort of tonic effects on um, certain endocrine system responses. Uh, and those can also include um, modulating or influencing how we process cholesterol too. Um, both endogenous cholesterol, like how much we're going to make or and what types, um, and also how well we break down and metabolize dietary cholesterol. So it can have positive, um, some of the triterpene-rich plants can have positive influence on um, blood, on serum lipids, on blood lipid profile. And then if we graduate up really big in size, we get tetraterpenes, and the main one that I know is um, carotene, beta carotene in carrots. So we get, we get into nutritional, we get to rubber, we get to things that are sort of outside of the context of medicinal plants. Um, but we could also include sterols, plant sterols, um, in this group. Um, and again, we're looking at, you know, some potential sort of, uh, modulating effects on that sterile part, talking about a similarity to cholesterol, um, and perhaps action on or modulation of some hormonal actions in animals as well by sort of a molecular resemblance. Okay, group, I think I'm over my word count for right now. I've talked for about an hour. Let's all take a break. I've got plenty more to say. Um, just take it at your own pace, but we've gotten a good little introduction to phytochemistry in this sitting. All right. This little sit I've done is a little bit of preparation for a, a four-hour intensive that I'm teaching at the Great Lakes Herb Fair in 2023 in September. Um, and so I'm just experimenting a little um, to see what parts of lessons I've produced before um, are going to either fill or overfill four hours if I need to go faster, slower, jump in quicker. Um, and so uh, that's part of the purpose for this, but also for just getting a recording down that might be instructional to many. If you found this, chances are that you found it through uh, my publisher page on Sounds wise sound wise and my little page is sound wise about medicinal plants but i have learned that people are finding these by other avenues too which is really cool so if you found this as a one-off through another i don't know podcast page um you might just look me up heather irvine at sound wise about medicinal plants and i have pieces that are anywhere from 10 minutes to 90 minutes on individual medicinal plants on specific health topics but always about medicinal plants um, I have the phytochemistry lesson or introduction done a little faster a little slower um, specific uh, groups of constituents or plants 
Um, and so in many of what I call monographs, I've got, I don't know, 15 or 20 individual plant monographs. Um, and I've been learning and teaching this stuff for around 20 years. So hopefully you might be a little bit curious to hear another one. Okay, thanks. <laughs>